the Australian Rotary Health podcast called The Research Behind Lift the Lid. I'm Jessica Cooper and today on our 41st episode I will be talking with Dr Rachel Brownlow about the findings from her PhD. Rachel is a clinical psychologist with a particular interest in the treatment of eating disorders. Rachel is now working at the Redleaf practice in St Leonard's which is a private practice specialising in the treatment of eating disorders. In her clinical practice, she currently sees a range of eating disorder presentations, including anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, working primarily with adolescents and young adults. Rachel was awarded a Rotary District 9690 Funding Partner PhD Scholarship in 2017 for her project, a randomised controlled trial to examine the effectiveness of oxytocin oxytocin to improve treatment for anorexia nervosa, which she completed at the University of Sydney in 2020. We'll be talking about the findings of this research in more detail today. So thank you very much, Rachel, for joining me on today's podcast episode. It's, it's such a huge achievement to have completed your PhD. So firstly, congratulations. Thank you so much, Jessica, and thanks for having me on the podcast today. Yeah, no worries at all. So um, not only have you completed a PhD in the area of eating disorders, but also on a day-to-day basis, you work with clients who, who have an eating disorder. So I guess to start off, could you tell us how important it is that the treatment clinicians use for people with eating disorders have that research and evidence base behind them? Absolutely. Um, Adopting an evidence-based treatment is essential when we think about the treatment of any mental illness, and by extension, this also applies to eating disorders. When we say evidence-based treatment, this is referring to scientifically rigorous peer-reviewed research studies that have been published in academic journals. So if we say a treatment is evidence-based, it means that the treatment is significantly better than doing some other sort of treatment or significantly better than doing nothing at all. So as clinicians, we are ethically obliged to ensure that our patients are coming to us in the knowledge that the treatment we will be offering them is one that has a strong scientific backing. So this really means being up to date with the most current literature and knowing what treatment to provide and when to provide it. One of the really challenging things about the evidence base regarding the treatment of eating disorders is that we have not had any really sort of new remarkable treatments within the last few decades. And part of what makes treatment challenging is that we do know that Eating disorders are certainly very complex in terms of how they come about, and they're influenced by a range of factors in what we call a biopsychosocial model of mental illness. So this refers to the impact and interaction of things like genetics, environment, as well as social and cultural factors as well. So we do know, however, that for an eating disorder like bulimia nervosa, for example, that in large part dieting is often responsible for triggering the illness. I guess having said all of that, we, you know, we do have effective treatments for eating disorders more broadly. And like with many treatments, we know that early detection and intervention is really very important. So if people can get help early, that generally leads to better outcomes. And 
And thinking about what treatments are out there, family-based treatment is the treatment of choice if you're an adolescent with an eating disorder, such as anorexia nervosa. And if you're an adult with, say, bulimia nervosa, the best evidence is for cognitive behaviour therapy or CBT. For something like binge eating disorder, again, CBT shows the best results. And broadly speaking, these treatments provide roughly a 70% recovery rate over differing lengths of time. So for some individuals, it might be a year of treatment that they're needed to get well, or for others, it might be a few years. So treatment can be quite long for some, but it's pretty good overall in bringing about recovery. I guess there, there are, however, a proportion of patients that we know about. It's about 20 to 30%. And I'm speaking particularly about those with anorexia nervosa, who, um, you know, where there are this proportion of patients who, who simply don't get better. And anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And this is primarily related to the impact of starvation on the body, though there are about 10% of these patients who will actually end up taking their own lives through suicide. So this is why we take this illness so seriously and why we're so driven toward improving treatment, especially for those that don't respond to the treatments that we currently have. And one of the barriers when working with eating disorders is that individuals with eating disorders, especially anorexia nervosa, often find it really very hard to engage with treatment because there's just so much anxiety involved for them in making the changes in behavior that treatment asks, asks for. So these changes might be eating more, it might be eating different foods, it might be exercising less. And individuals with eating disorders, especially anorexia, again, really can find themselves in this terrible bind and sort of stuckness where they absolutely do want to feel better and change their lives but it's just so frightening for them to take the steps to make the necessary changes in order to reclaim their lives so this is really why we're feeling so desperate in this area i suppose and particularly in the treatment of anorexia to try and establish new treatments that might add to our evidence base and show high levels of efficacy in bringing about recovery for patients and also treatments that might work on this engagement aspect. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, it's a very difficult disorder to, to treat and, and really having that evidence-based, um, it, it's so important and, and, you know, looking at new treatments as well. And I, I think your um, PhD particular, um, your PhD project sounds like it would have been very interesting, um, especially explore, exploring how oxytocin may improve treatment outcomes for anorexia nervosa. Um, I guess for those who might not know, what exactly is oxytocin? Yeah, so oxytocin is a really interesting and powerful little neuropeptide that naturally occurs in all of our bodies. So it's secreted in the hypothalamus in the brain and it's responsible for a complex array of emotional and social behaviors in animals and humans. It's particularly well known for its role in supporting the process of maternal care in offspring where it assists in the experience of bonding between mother and child. Oxytocin is one of the main neurotransmitters released in the brain when mothers breastfeed and it creates a warm, fuzzy feeling that increases the chances that that mother will actually bond to her baby and continue to look after it while it's still vulnerable and growing. But oxytocin is also at work 
in our social interactions outside of the maternal relationship. So when we get like a really nice hug from a friend or someone that we care about, um, we might feel that warm, fuzzy feeling as well. And oxytocin is generally associated with feeling less anxious and promoting an overall sense of well-being. So it's quite powerful. And there were some important studies that were carried out in the early 2000s with um, these cute little animals called prairie voles. You can look them up and see how cute they are. Um, and they live in Central and North America. And they look, they look a little bit like a guinea pig. And basically... They found that these little prairie voles had these very high levels of oxytocin receptors in their brains, um, which, which was sort of related to the fact that there was more oxytocin floating around as well. And they were able to link this to the fact that the prairie voles mate monogamously um, and for life, which is, which is pretty cute um, and actually quite rare in some animals. So, so this was an important finding in sort of establishing the relevance of oxytocin for social um, and mating behaviours in animals. And I guess it's informed how we think about how it might work in humans as well. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah, definitely very interesting. And yeah, I'll have to look up that animal. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. so what led you to explore oxytocin as a potential treatment um, option for eating disorders? So in humans, there is some evidence that oxytocin levels, so the levels that are in the, in the blood or in um, spinal fluid, that those levels might actually be lower in those that have mental illnesses compared to people without mental illness. So they found that particularly in illnesses that are defined in some way by social deficits, so schizophrenia, autism spectrum disorder, and this led researchers to think about how they might try and supplement with an oxytocin nasal spray mm -hmm. as a way of influencing a system that we understand to be linked to improved social connection. Anorexia nervosa is also classically a very socially isolating illness to have. Often people withdraw from the world to a great extent, especially in the more severe stages of illness. In addition to this, it's very common in anorexia for there to be shyness, anxiety and social anxiety, as well as other interpersonal and social problems that often predate the onset of the illness. And there's also research suggesting that these low oxytocin levels are present in anorexia nervosa, in addition to studies that have shown that oxytocin nasal spray um, when given to those who have mental illnesses can actually be quite helpful um, in addressing some of these, these social difficulties. So one of the most notable mental illnesses that's been studied in relation to oxytocin nasal spray is uh, autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of studies in the 2010s that showed a lot of promise in what appeared to be an improvement in social and emotional communication in those with autism when they were given oxytocin nasal spray compared to placebo. And when I say placebo, I just mean like a salt spray. So something that doesn't have an active ingredient in it. There was also some evidence around um, showing that it might help change rigid patterns of thinking, promote more flexible ways of thinking and to generally reduce anxiety levels and to promote trust. Mm -hmm. So Professor Janice Russell, who's a psychiatrist with a really long and established career in treating eating disorders, particularly anorexia nervosa, she came up with the idea for the randomised controlled trial that my PhD was based on 
And I think she just thought, you know, this, this oxytocin thing seems to be helping other patients with similar difficulties, um, even though there hadn't been studies on anorexia per se i think she just thought well why why don't we give this a go and see if it and see if it helps so the team that she led um, a research team ran a few smaller studies a few years ago and essentially they gave patients um, the, the who were being treated in hospital for anorexia nervosa they had either placebo so the salt spray or they had the oxytocin nasal spray and they had that every day twice a day for either four or six weeks and basically that that those small studies showed some quite encouraging findings including a reduction in eating concern which is a subscale of a measure that looks at eating disorders. Um, it's quite a well-established measure called the eating disorder examination. Mm. And it, it looks at eating disordered thinking and eating disordered behaviors. And essentially they saw that the oxytocin nasal spray made a significant difference in reducing that eating concern compared to placebo. Mm. And in, in addition to this, and I think this is what really um, sort of formed an important part of my thinking around my PhD was that Professor Russell in these smaller studies, she noticed that some of the patients who they later found out had had the oxytocin nasal spray, they actually showed these signs of increased social engagement so they were able to reconnect with friends that they hadn't seen for a long time. They were wanting to be around their families. They're wanting to be around other people much more often than previously. Mm. And so these sorts of qualitative changes were quite unexpected in a way and, and actually seemed to be quite positive for patients. So I think it felt important that in the larger randomised controlled trial that I was a part of, that we follow up on some of these observations and, and see if they continued. Yeah, great. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, it, um, it's a really important area and your your study was able to really expand on some of those smaller findings. So, yeah, I guess, um, could, could you tell us a bit about the design and, and initial aims of your PhD project? So importantly, I think, as, as I was explaining just before, this was the second study of its kind in Australia. Um, so it was in Australia first, um, aside from the smaller pilot studies that I'd, I'd mentioned just before. And, and again, so um, Professor Janice Russell was involved in, in running this one as well as the previous ones. And, and again, we were sort of just trying to focus on, on really doing much the same thing that the earlier studies had done, looking at that repeated dosing of oxytocin nasal spray in anorexia nervosa. Um, so it was quite exciting because this, you know, this particular study had never been undertaken before anywhere else in the world. And, you know, that, that did kind of make it a special project to be involved with. So the study was a, a randomised placebo-controlled trial. Um, so essentially what that means is that we took a group of patients with anorexia nervosa who were being treated in hospital. Um, so these patients, while they're in hospital, they're undergoing what we call inpatient refeeding, which is generally the first line of treatment for patients that are dangerously underweight and they really need to be refed immediately. And um, so, that, so they're in hospital and they've got to eat, you know, multiple meals a day, often, um, you know, quite a number, like maybe six or seven meals a day in order to, to gain weight and to get medically well. Um, so that, that, that was the patient population we were looking at. So patients 
gave us informed consent to participate in the study and then they were randomly allocated to either the oxytocin nasal spray group or the placebo or salt spray group and they took um, the nasal spray twice a day for four weeks. Importantly, the patients and we, the investigators, didn't know who was getting what, placebo or oxytocin, so no one knows who's getting what, so that way it doesn't interfere with, with how we interpret the results. So we, we tested patients initially on a range of measures. So this was when they first started taking the spray. So we looked at how severe their eating disorder was, what their thinking and behaviour was like. So that's the eating disorder examination that I mentioned before. We also looked at their anxiety levels, their interpersonal and social relationships. We had some measures looking at those, as well as a number of other measures looking at a bunch of other things. So patients were tested on all of these before they started the spray and then after they'd taken the spray for four weeks. And then once the patients had been discharged from hospital, we saw them at the six months sort of post-treatment mark as well. And we repeated most of those measures a third time at that point. Um, it's important to highlight that we didn't consider the oxytocin to be a sufficient standalone treatment, but rather something that could be applied to an existing treatment. And in this case, it was the process of refeeding in the inpatient treatment context. And we were really keen to see if the oxytocin would make the process of being refed in hospital a little easier and that maybe even it would allow patients to engage better in treatment and potentially gain more weight and feel better about their bodies at the end of the treatment. We knew that this would be a, a, you know, an exceptionally tough ask because many of these patients had been unwell for at least a few years at the time that we saw them. And this was a very unwell group of patients when we think about all the patients out there who do have an eating disorder, like those in the community as well as in hospital. It's really the ones that are in, in hospital and requiring refeeding that are often struggling you know in a, in a pretty profound way and so they, we really do consider them the, the most unwell patients but I think despite this I, I think we had hopes that that oxytocin might be really helpful especially based on the previous pilot studies that I mentioned which seemed to indicate that it could maybe improve some of the thinking and behaviors around the eating disorder and that eating concern and one aspect that I was examining in a bit more detail was whether or not patients might show some improvement in their social and interpersonal relationships again just based on the informal evidence from those earlier pilot studies that showed that oxytocin helped um, some individuals with anorexia nervosa re-establish those social connections. So I guess in order to kind of assess this, we had, we had some quantitative measures, like questionnaires that patients had to fill out. But I also interviewed patients at the six-month follow-up mark to get more of a sense from them about what they noticed, both in terms of potential changes in their eating disorder, but also importantly in their social relationships. Mm, yeah, so it sounds like you measured a lot of different things. Um, what, what kind of results came out of this study? Yeah, so I think one of the main findings and, and just sort of forgetting, just taking the oxytocin out of the picture for a moment, um, what we were able to measure is how patients were um, at the start of treatment in hospital and at the end of treatment in hospital. And, and I think importantly, what we found was that on average, all of the patients 
who underwent the refeeding process in hospital for four weeks were significantly improved in terms of their eating disorder thinking and behaviors at the end of treatment um so at the end of the four weeks so so compared to when they first came in we could see that going to hospital eating enough food to gain weight it's beneficial um in helping patients become essentially less eating disordered and that might sound really self-evident but I think I think that this was an important part of our study because it really showed us that yeah uh, going to hospital helps eating more helps and it helps the psychological and the behavioral impact of the illness which is really really important so the message there was that hospital helps so when it came to the impact of the oxytocin our research showed that compared to placebo four weeks of oxytocin nasal spray did actually help to reduce some concern that patients with anorexia nervosa felt about their weight. So it wasn't about eating in this case, as we'd found earlier, it was about weight concern. Um, So that's, you know, again, like measured on the eating disorder examination that I mentioned earlier. And I guess weight concern really captures this idea about worrying and thinking about their weight a lot, which is which is a, a massive part of anorexia. So when we looked at that, we found that because we, we measured patients' weight gain as well over time, that was one that I didn't mention earlier, but we didn't actually find that the reduction in weight concern translated into an improvement in their in their um, in their actual weight, which was unfortunate, and and I guess in addition to that, we didn't find that overall when we took the whole eating disorder examination, which is made up of these little subscales. When we looked at the overall scores before and after oxytocin compared to placebo, it didn't seem to translate to an overall improvement in their eating disorder. Um, so, you know, that that was something that that was a bit of a shame, but we did see. Similarly to the to the pilot study, there was that little shift in in weight concern. Um, when it came to interpersonal and social relationships, we had a really interesting finding was unearthed and unearthed and quite unexpected. Unexpectedly, the oxytocin nasal spray actually increased patients' distress around problems in their relationships with friends and family when we compared that to placebo. And this is when we saw patients at the six-month follow-up mark. So that was after the study had finished. So we didn't see this at the four-week mark, but we did see it much later. And I think this was really quite a surprise for us because it's sort of the opposite of what we thought we were going to see and you know oxytocin is often linked as I described before to feeling more social with others more trusting more comfortable so this really stumped us in a way and I I guess the the finding um, when we actually looked at the literature it might suggest that there could be other factors about eating disorders such as how secure individuals with an eating disorder might feel in relationships that could have influenced this result and actually, we found that, that there are a few papers out there, research studies, that show that this unusual, I guess, a paradoxical effect of oxytocin, it's actually been shown in other research. However, this was the first time that anyone's seen it in anorexia nervosa. So these findings, I think, were actually quite important, even though it wasn't in the direction that 
that we were hoping it would be, I guess it seemed it seemed to us based on these findings that oxytocin doesn't always behave in this straightforward manner and that maybe for some of the patients in our study, the oxytocin might have actually interacted with what we call like attachment style. An attachment style essentially refers to how secure and comfortable we feel as we negotiate relationships in our lives. So everyone's got an attachment style and, and it refers to this enduring pattern of how we relate to others. And there's three types. There's anxious, avoidant and secure. And, and secure is obviously the ideal. And the other types can, you know, obviously mean that we avoid, um, you know, aspects of relationships. We feel very anxious about them. So I think critically, we didn't actually measure attachment in the study that we ran. Um, but we do know that generally speaking, there are high rates of anxious or avoidant attachment styles in individuals with anorexia nervosa. So we can feel confident that that's probably what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and there are also other studies um, out there that have looked at oxytocin and other mental illnesses, and they've uncovered this effect, as I mentioned before. And it seems to be this interaction effect between underlying attachment style and then the oxytocin nasal spray seems to like activate it in some way. So potentially the mechanism that we think might be happening is that the oxytocin might be promoting more social interaction or maybe making social cues more obvious. And when I say social cues, I just mean like when you're, when you're sitting with someone and interacting with them, you might be really attending to what people's faces are doing um, or like certain little nonverbal cues. And, you know, and while those things might feel okay for someone who's securely attached, for our patients with anorexia nervosa, they might be having a more pronounced reaction where their anxiety and their avoidance is actually being triggered in a really big way. Mm -hmm. So we think that this could possibly explain what happened in our study, but we can't say it conclusively because we didn't, we didn't actually measure attachment. Yeah. I think, interestingly, when I went on to interview patients about their experience of taking oxytocin or placebo, there was a decent percentage of those who took the oxytocin who said that they actually felt more open with others uh, and also more flexible in their thinking and behaviours. And it was really interesting with the openness because that was something that didn't show up at all in the patients who took placebo. So it feels like that might be something particular to oxytocin. Mm -hmm. and, and there were some patients that I interviewed who really felt that the oxytocin made a difference to them. But having said that, there were patients who didn't. Um, some just said, no, I didn't, I didn't notice anything. Um, there were, you know, notably some, uh, one in particular, one patient who had placebo really felt that the, that the placebo had helped, but she didn't know at the time that it was placebo, but she really did feel that it had made a big difference to her. I think the other trend that we noticed with the interviews was, was that it seemed to me that patients who'd been unwell for a longer period of time with anorexia, they seemed more likely to report helpful changes. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, guess, I guess what's important to say as well is that I was only able to interview quite a small number of patients. So it was really difficult to know whether oxytocin produced similar effects across the entire group or whether it was just these few that, that I interviewed. But I did feel encouraged by these, these experiences that patients had. And it was really interesting to listen to their stories. 
Yeah, yeah, well, it definitely sounds like you got some really interesting findings out of that that study and, you know, some things that weren't quite expected as well. So, you know, I guess it's always just a bit of trial and error and seeing what works and what doesn't and, yeah, really exploring that. So that's, yeah, really important. Um, do I guess do you see these findings um, being used in, in your own clinical practice or might there be other implications that may come out of this research? I think the implications are that oxytocin wasn't the silver bullet that we hoped it might be for anorexia nervosa. Uh, there's still so much we don't understand about oxytocin and how it might operate in this illness. And, and I think certainly in eating disorders more broadly, we just can't say. There really are only a handful of studies looking at oxytocin, nasal spray and eating disorders more broadly. And as I mentioned before, this was the first trial um, of its kind at this scale. So I think it's really it's really interesting to me like to think about the few patients that I interviewed who really did feel that the spray was helpful for them and also keeping in mind that we're looking at a very acutely unwell subset of patients who are being treated in hospital. We know that there's plenty of individuals with eating disorders who never get to hospital. They never have an admission. And maybe these patients might show a greater benefit from something like oxytocin. I know that I just said before that like maybe it's those with a longer course of illness, but we, we just don't know about any of this without more research. And I think the other aspect that is useful to have a sense of is that we get this paradoxical response in terms of interpersonal distress increasing in patients that we saw at six months after the study um, for those that had the oxytocin compared to placebo. And I think those findings serve as a good guide to anyone who might be considering doing more research in the area so that they can watch out for these effects and make sure it's managed properly. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess, um, are there any other plans for further research in this area? So I'm not currently involved in ongoing research in the area at the moment, but I think that there would be grounds to do more research if people wanted to pursue it. I think another sort of key limitation of, of our study is that we involve, like we actually screened um, about 600 patients across five hospitals in Australia. And we had very, very strict and specific criteria that allowed patients to enter the study. And we actually ended, only ended up um, having 64 out of 600 that were eligible, which I think really does limit the conclusions that we can draw about oxytocin and anorexia nervosa. And I feel that future work might benefit from selecting a broader group of patients in which to test oxytocin to see if we get different results. Yeah. And for, for anyone listening who may be experiencing an eating disorder or any body image concerns, um, do you have any tips that might be helpful for them? Definitely. I would say that anyone who has an eating disorder or body image concerns or is struggling with their eating in any way, you are not alone. There is help available. I think a good place to start would be to make an appointment with your GP to talk about what's going on for you and ask about, you know, what options are there. Ask about seeing a therapist who's got training and experience in the treatment of eating disorders. If the idea of going to your GP feels a bit overwhelming, you can, you can call the Butterfly Foundation. Um, their number is 1-800-ED-HOPE. 
So that's 1-800-ED-HOPE. Um, alternatively, you can go to butterfly.org.au and there's free support via Butterfly Foundation and free treatment and referral options. So that's another good option for people. Yeah, well, thank you for, yeah, for giving someone, yeah, anyone who listens who, who might be experiencing that, I think that would be very helpful for them. So, yeah, thanks for that. Um, your, your PhD research in particular was co-funded by um, Rotary District 9690. And many of our projects are supported by Rotarians who fundraise and, and make donations to Australian Rotary Health. Um, for our Rotary audience, uh, could you explain how important it is that research into mental health and more specifically eating disorders keeps continuing on? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's absolutely critical that research into eating disorders continues. Um, while our in understanding of eating disorders has improved a lot, there's still so much work to do in terms of translating this into effective treatment options. And I think just because oxytocin nasal spray wasn't the answer for us in this instance, it doesn't mean that we should give up on trying to find more effective treatment options. Rotary is doing really such wonderful work in supporting mental health research so I really want to thank Rotary for doing the great work that they're doing. Yeah well I'm sure that they'd love to hear all about the research that they've um, helped support so I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and um, talking about your research findings and yeah it's been really good. Um, I guess before we wrap up today was there anything that you'd like to add? I think, again, just to thank Rotary for their support during the running of the trial and, and for me writing up my PhD. And I think as well to, you know, to the research team, Professor Janice Russell, um, as well as everyone else involved. And I think especially to thank the patients who gave up their time and, you know, often being in hospital is a pretty vulnerable time for patients. So, it, you know, this research couldn't have happened if it wasn't for them um, and for them taking a chance with oxytocin. So um, feels important to thank them to thank them as well yeah well thank you as well for doing you know such important work it's um yeah it's very important to keep continuing finding you know new ways to help people especially with such you know a, a difficult disorder to treat so yeah yeah keep thanks, up the good work <laughs> <laughs> thanks that was the 41st episode of our podcast called The Research Behind Lift the Lid. It's always so inspiring to hear what researchers in Australia are doing to make a difference to mental health and how they are helping us on our mission to lift the lid on mental illness. If you can, please support important mental health research like Rachel's by donating on the Australian Rotary Health website. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.